I want to encourage you to open up to page 751, Hosea chapter 2 and chapter 3. My name is Paul Vroom. I am Gomer. The scandal of the book of Hosea is my own personal scandal. I am the one who played the harlot. I was the one who used God's gifts and let those gifts feed the idols of my heart. I was the one who ran away. And I was the one who Jesus bought back. He rescued me from all the vanity fair of my idolatrous ways. Gomer's story is my story. And that is the reality. What is going on? Is it me? I pray that is not going to be a distraction this morning. If not, you are on to hook me up. So that is how we are to approach the book of Hosea. That this is, the story of Hosea and Gomer is our story. A story of redemption and salvation, of of seeing the beauty of God's grace as God pursues you and me. So last week we started our series of this 8th century B.C. minor prophet. And for some of you, I believe it is the very first time that you have read or studied this kind of book in the Bible. In fact, I've also heard from one missional community that after last week's sermon, they had their richest missional community discussion that they've ever had. So the eyes of their hearts were open. So I hope that you, last week, and also for this week, I hope that you see the gospel of Jesus Christ differently more beautifully. And I hope that you not understood the message, but I also hope that you felt the message of of Hosea. And hopefully that you felt this message of Hosea not just once, but throughout the week. And Jake kind of even testified that about seeing how the prodigal son is a beautiful story of how God welcomes home lost sinners. But the story of Hosea is a a story of how God pursues the lost the wayward. So the aim of our study in the book of Hosea is to see how God gives grace to wayward people because of who God is. In other words, like our study in Exodus some five years ago, for those of you who were around way back then, the story of Hosea is not about Hosea. It's not about Gomer. It wasn't even really about Israel. Ultimately, the story of Hosea and the story of of, uh, Exodus is about God. A gracious, loving, righteously jealous, and redeeming God who pursues sinful people in their rebellion. So while we can say, I am Gomer, we need to also say loudly, and enthusiastically, He is my deliverer. So, in case you were not here last week, I'm going to kind of quickly try to bring you up to speed before we jump into Hosea chapter 3. Here's the deal. This book is what is called a prophetic book. It delivers a message from God to His people. 
We see that in the, right at the very beginning, verse 1 of chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea. So it, it's a word from God for God's people. And it was delivered to the northern tribes that are called, uh, called Israel. And that is predominantly who the audience is. Hosea was written during the time period when the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. The northern and the southern. Judah was in the south. Israel was to the north. Israel was far, far more rebellious, and they had even worse leaders. Hosea writes during a a time of economic prosperity, national expansion, and geopolitical tensions. Does it sound like us at all? I, I mean, really, think about it. Prosperity, expansion, geopolitical tensions. They saw it with the Assyrian nation to their east. Was, it was rising in power. And eventually God would use Assyria as a, as a means of discipline for the children of Israel. And it was also using Assyria as a stern warning for Judah. Forsaking God has consequences. And in 722 B.C., Israel, the northern kingdom, fell to the Assyrian nation, invasion and the people were scattered over the world as exiles. So this book is written to warn them about spiritual unfaithfulness. Spiritual unfaithfulness in their nation, which is putting them on a collision course with God's love and God's justice. And in order for them to feel the weight of what this is like, the book uses a real-life metaphor of Hosea's message to a marriage to a woman who becomes a prostitute as a picture of God's relationship to Israel. The image, the language, the story are designed to make you wince. Just know that. Last week, some of the, the words like whoredom, some of you kind of went, ah! he actually said that word. Yeah, it's a biblical word. But it's meant to make us wince. Hosea helps us to see and feel the true scandal of God's grace. So that's the background. Let's dive into Hosea chapter 2. My friends, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. After we are done reading it, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and your response will be, thanks be to God. My friends, Hosea chapter 2. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband that she put away her whoring from her face and let her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst upon her children. Also, I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore and she... She who conceived them has acted shamefully. 
For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wolf and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. I will put an end to all of her mirth, her feasts and her new moons, her Sabbaths and all her appointed feasts. I will lay waste to her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which, are my, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast, of the feast days of Baals, which she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with ring, her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. Hear this good news. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I am bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will recover the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by, my, by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground, and I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall, shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he will say, you are my God. And God said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, 
though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer of lesh of, of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. I shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I be also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without an ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord and David, their king, and they shall come, to fe- come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the later days. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So as I think of the, the theme of this long section of reading, and just so you know, next week it is chapters 4, 5, and 6. Next week I am going to read a smaller section, so it is going to be your responsibility this week to read chapters 4, 5, and 6 to yourself and hear those words. But for this section, chapters 2 and 3, this is what I'm seeing as kind of a, a chapter summary or a theme. of I see God's pursuing people with His costly grace. So chapters 2 and 3 continue our, our journey with a kind of a unique twist going on. Chapter 1 set the scene of God's scandalous grace. And in the next two chapters, we see God's posture towards His people. We, we see God leaning in to love His people. We see Him enticing and, and wooing, enticing, kind of in this dating and courting, trying to bring back Israel to Himself. We hear His warnings about discipline. That will eventually come their way. And we'll also see a very vivid, we saw a very vivid illustration as Hosea actually buys back his wife. So we need to remember as we walk through this that God still pursues people. God still pursues you with costly grace. So here's what we see. Kind of walking through this section by section. In the first section we see this. We see a a gracious pursuit of God. Chapter 2 is remarkable because of just how it begins. The people are, are rebellious. While the people are just rebellious, outwardly running away from God, God lovingly and God graciously pursues them. God reaches out to them, casting a vision for the future, and He's even affirming His love for them. And while, while in this text we see Israel's absolute waywardness, we still get this beautiful picture of a God who pursues. Pursues His people in spite of their waywardness. Verse 1 is likely connected to uh, chapter 1 where God is reaffirming His covenant-keeping love and His his intention to ultimately restore His people back to Himself. Therefore, we we hear in verse 1, You are My people. And you have received mercy. As, as, as we find God communicating His love for His people, even in their waywardness. So everything that God will say and will do, including divine punishment, 
is based on his love for his people. And that's even a, there's practical applications here for you who are parents or desiring to be parents or who are spiritual parents in this church, which includes oh, everybody. Discipline is a means of expressing love. The ultimate goal of discipline is restoration, of bringing people into a more holy, loving, and pure relationship with God. And so this is a call. God, God is showing even the church that discipline is a good thing. And that's even one of the marks of a true church is one who expresses love through discipline. So God is saying, man, I, I want you to understand my love for you. So after God is affirming His ultimate intention of love, God pleads with Israel. The word used here is used two times in close proximity, which is a frequent way in kind of Hebrew poetry of kind of affirming things. This, the Hebrew word is connected to a serious and even a legal request to plead. It's noteworthy that the NIV translates it as rebuke and the NASB as contend. There is a tone of heartfelt desperation, of pleading, pleading. So God is deeply grieved over, over the work of what, what the children of Israel are doing. All of the warnings that follow in the text are part of God's intentional pursuit of his people he warns them strongly why because he's a mean god he's an angry god no it's because he loves his children and so verse 2 also reminds us why any action of god is gracious the marriage to israel is broken and it is due to israel's adultery she is living the life of a wayward woman she is chasing after other gods. The wording in verse 2 has historical references to sexuality and infidelity. So next, God warns the people what will happen if they continue to go down that path. Judgment is going to come. Discipline is going to come. But notice how the divine discipline is described in verse 3. Israel is going to be publicly exposed and ashamed. She will be vulnerable like a little child. There will be hardship and suffering. Consequences will extend even to her children. We even hear those warnings. The sins of a father are passed down from generation to generation. So the final verse puts some fuller color on why this is all happening. By repeating the waywardness of, of Gomer, how she played the whore, we hear the, the words of her heart. Verse 5, For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water 
and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink and my pleasure and my cars and my satisfaction, my hope. And I'm going after all those things that seem to feed me and make me happy. What is going on? And here we, we get here the longing of an idolatrous heart, right? Ultimately, the children of Israel are not idolaters just because they are bored. They have nothing else to do. Rather, they pursue other gods because they believe that they, by worshiping other gods, they will get something in return. Now, in order to understand what's going on here, we've got to understand a little bit of uh, cultural background. What was going on in this context? And they are worshiping a false god named Baal. And this god was a central part of the, the Canaanite culture and their worldview, along with another god named Asheroth. So both Baal and Asheroth were believed to be connected to the fertility of the earth. Baal was the male god associated with storms and rains, and Asheroth was a female god associated with agriculture and trees and plants. And the, the Canaanites believed that the fertility of their crops was directly related to the fertility of their gods. Therefore, the worship of Baal involved both offerings and rampant immorality. Sexual activity was a central part of, of worship of Baal. And it was believed to be the means by which the fertility of the crops and the animals and the lands was facilitated. So cultic prostitution was part of Baal. And some of you are checking out and going, well, I, I don't have that issue. I, I, I don't see that. I don't, I don't go to a prostitute right now so that my crops, I don't think we even have a farmer in here, so that my crops are prosperous. Don't check out. The deadly attraction of Baal was the satanic strategy of combining what people believed that they needed along with sexual pleasures and then making it seem normal. The crops needed rain. Baal provided it. Baal is, is moved through, through sacrifices and sexuality. And in order to get what is needed, spiritual idolatry and sexual immorality combine in a deadly and attractive pattern of worship. Can I tell you this? Satan's strategy has not changed. It hasn't changed. Even today, the enemy uses the deadly uh, combination of what we think we need and want with some kind of a physical or emotional payoff. That's what Satan does. And it's sometimes very subtle. What we need. And if we get what we need, we get some kind of payoff. Right? Years ago, I read uh, the following analysis by a guy named Ed Welch. Can I encourage you? Pick up anything by Ed Welch. He is a, a counselor, who, who, a Christian counselor who talks a lot about addiction. And this is what he said. So it is with modern idolatry as well. 
We don't want to be ruled by alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling, food, or anything. No, we want these substances or activities to give us what we want. Good feelings. A better self-image. A sense of power. Or whatever our heart is craving. Idols, however, do not cooperate. Rather than mastering our idols, we become enslaved by them and begin to look like them. Idolaters lose their spiritual moorings, controlled by the lures of sirens. This is the way to feel good, pleasure, belonging, and a better self-image but they are doomed to be destroyed on the rocks. The issue of idolatry has not gone away since the 8th century B.C. It is still, my friends, a rampant problem, and God is still pursuing His people because of it. My friends, we can all, and we all should readily admit, and when you go to your uh, missional communities, maybe this is a great activity of saying, what really is your idol? the thing that you want, and what what is that idol promising to give you in return? I, I want a perfect family. Well, what is that going to give you in return? I want a perfect marriage. Well, what is that going to give you in return? I want to have enough financial resources to uh, get all the way to the end and have a beautiful uh, place in Florida. What is that going to give you in return? What are all? What is the connection? My friends, we need to be thinking that we are idolaters. Sin always offers a payoff, and yet God is continuing to pursue us. And why does He continue to pursue us? Because He is God. But we see in this next section that God has a means to bring us back. And we see in here, in verses 6-13, through a gracious kind of discipline that God has. The second action that he has it actually involves discipline and there's two kinds of divine intervention that god employs in order to stop israel from idolatry and the first one is what i would call a kind of divine resistance you see that god is making things difficult for his people that's why we read about a hedge or a, a wall around her so israel has a hard time going to her her lovers. He intends to make it a struggle for them to pursue the things that they think are going to give them a great payoff. So that ultimately, she will give up her pursuit of those things and return to faithfulness. She needs this divine resistance because of her mind and her heart has been darkened. We, we even have that in Romans chapter 1. The, the nation no longer connects the blessings of their life to God's favor. They, they not, not only take God's kindness and mercy for granted, but they use those things that God has given them for continuing in their idolatry. James, James chapter 4 after calling the people idolatrous because of their covetousness and their conflict, we hear God resists the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. And God 
still brings resistance to his people when they stray. And some of you know exactly what that looks like. And that you may feel this, have a sense of God is hedging you in and putting walls around you. You keep getting warnings from the Lord and that is the first step of discipline. And hopefully you pick up the clue phone and return to the Lord. But for Israel, it continues. So there's divine resistance, but there's also divine removal. Verses 9-13, through 13, we look at, the God, at God taking more specific and even more drastic actions. There, there's six, six I will statements that are all connected to the discipline of God. Verse 9, God intends to take back the supplies that the people trusted in. I'm, I'm, I'm taking back. I gave these things to you. And these are gifts of grace. But I'm taking them back from you. In verse 10, God is going to publicly expose her actions. She cannot hide in the dark anymore. He is going to put her out in the public square and she is going to feel disgraced. In verse 11, Israel's celebrations that God has given them will come to an end. The party is over, God is saying. No more celebrations, no, new, no more new moon celebrations, no more Sabbath celebrations. The party is over. And in verse 12, God will remove the things that she believes she has earned or the things that she feels entitled to. And then verse 13, this is the heavy one. The favor of God is even going to be removed. She is going to be actually punished for her pagan worship. So God removes resources. He removes privacy. He removes happiness. He removes position. He removes possessions. And ultimately God even removes His favor. And God intends for Israel to know that they are experiencing the discipline of the Lord for the express purpose of winning them back. God loves Israel. Therefore, He must do something. The book of Hebrews even echoes that exact same sentiment about the loving purposes of divine discipline. Hebrews 12. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the ones that He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. God, my friends, my, our God disciplines His people out of love. And I wonder if that is where you are today. Have the idols of your heart gotten the better of you? And can you see that the Lord is sending you a clear message through resistance and removal? Why not turn back to Him? Heed His call. He's loving you by making life difficult. Don't resist His discipline another day. 
And sometimes I'm, I'm asked, how do you know if God is disciplining you? How do you know? Sometimes bad things happen, right? Or multiple things happen right at one, right after another. And you begin to wonder, is God disciplining me? At, on one level, everything hard and good has discipline or growth qualities that can emerge, right? So it's not always a clear answer. But how do you know if something big is connected to a specific sin? My answer, you know. If you are really listening to the Lord and you're aware of the sinfulness of your sin, you know if this is divine discipline. And, and you know almost immediately. And when you do, remember, my friends, it is a sign of God's love for you that it's even happening. I love you. Return to me. Leads us to the next section found in verses 14 through 23. And this makes a beautiful and redemptive and hopeful turn in, verses four, in verse 14 as we see kind of a, a, an expression of God's merciful pursuit of His people. The tone shifts from warnings to wooing. Listen to verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. God intends to win back the heart of His people. And the word allure can be strong enough to suggest enticement or seduction. God is going to make the emotional and personal case for Israel's return. His strategy to speak to her tenderly was often used in romantic contexts throughout the Bible. So we have a God, my friends, a God who entices us, seduces us with His love. Take note that, uh, of the fact that God is first God who is making that first move, right? It's not the children of Israel. It is God who's making the first move. And it is God who, who is making the greater effort. Israel initiated their own waywardness. They left the ranch. But it is God who initiates a gracious pursuit to bring her back. And this reminds me of one of the most well-known passages in all of the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave. He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Who is the one that is initiating it? It is God. God is the one who gave. It is God the one who pursues His people. It is God is the one who, who makes a way for His people to have life. And this is who our God is. This is a, why God even does the work found in the Gospel. He offers gracious hope because He is the one who wants to bring back His wayward people. That's who our God is. And what follows in verses 15 through 23 is a beautiful picture of what God desires to do for His people. He allures them with the promise of blessing. 
He will make the places of bad memories, such as the Valley of Achor, places of redemption. God will take the painful places and He will make them beautiful and redeem them. You'll see in verse 15, God will restore them to their first love as He did in His deliverance from Egypt. He's going to renew His relationship with His people. In verse 16, He will wipe the temptation from idolatry out of their experience in verse 17. He will make a covenant of peace with His people in verse 18. He will betroth them to Himself with the bride price of righteousness, justice, steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness in verses 19 through 20. In verses 21 through 22, He will show His glory and His kindness to the entire created order. And in verse 23, He will show mercy and grace to those who formerly rejected Him. That, my friends, is the Gospel. Did you notice all the God will statements? God is the one who is going to bring hope into the question. God's people, just like you and me, prove time and time and time again that our redemption does not rely on our reliability. And that is good news. Our faithfulness cannot rely on our fidelity. Our only hope is in God. And what a joy to consider the the very God-centeredness of the hope of redemption. Think about that. It's, It's not dependent on you. God is the one who is chasing after us. He is the one who is able to make all things new. He is the one who allures us. God makes promises. God restores. God makes covenants. And it is God whose glory is ultimately displayed. Which brings us to chapter 3. And just to be sure that we get the picture deeply embedded in our hearts, chapter 3 records Hosea's gracious rescue of his wife when he buys her back. And this is a gracious picture, my friends. Verse 1 sets the scene for us again. The prophet is commanded. He is commanded to love a wayward woman. But this time, there's a price. He has to pay a price. We're we're not totally sure of Gomer's situation, but her plight and her helplessness is absolutely clear. She is owned by another. And now Hosea has to buy her out of slavery. She was either enslaved or so in debt that she was trapped. And keep in mind that this would have sound been the second time that Hosea had to pay a price for Gomer. He would have had to surrender a sizable sum to her family as a bridal dowry. He first had to pay a price. And then he has to pay for her again. How many of us have that kind of patience? Our God does. Can you imagine? Like, God with us. Hosea pays Gomer's debt. 
so that what already belonged to him can be bought back, brought back to him. The purchase is redemptive. Hosea intends for Gomer to be rescued and for her to ultimately change. And verse 3 bears it out. Gomer will belong to Hosea, but his purchase of her, his purchase of her was not so that she can be free to continue in her former lifestyle. No. Hosea's purchase is designed to bring about a new relationship between Gomer and him. God is setting his people on a path of restoration. And that's what verse 4 is referring to. And there is a hope for a future day when the people who sought after Baal, that false god, will once again seek the Lord their God. And there's a, a dream of a day, coming day when a David-like king will rule over them. And there will be a time when they will fear the Lord in a right way and they will experience the beauty of His goodness. There is a coming day. And this is foretelling and looking towards, ultimately towards Christ. And what a picture of the beauty of God's grace that we find here in this book. This text calls us, hear this, this calls us to do a number of things. So church, give ear to this. Consider, consider if God might be calling you to turn from your waywardness and to come to Christ today. Maybe today you have found and you've realized in your life that you have been chasing after other things. And you've been hoping that those other things will have some kind of payoff. And you have found them absolutely empty. Consider Christ. Maybe we need to contemplate the way in which God has rescued you from the slave market of your own idolatry. Maybe we need to confess publicly, privately, areas of idolatry that have taken hold of your life. And needing to rely on the grace of God and the power of the Spirit to uproot those areas of idolatry. My friends, these areas of idolatry are far and wide. Your mind can be creative. And you think they might be inconsequential little things. But they're all deterrence from Christ Himself. But maybe, lastly, we need to actually celebrate the God-centeredness of redemption. Celebrate. Should not the people of God be the, the happiest people? Should not our songs be louder than the, the songs of this world? 
Should not we be the most free people to love others and call them to life in Christ? Should not we be the most celebrating people, people who throw parties? Yes is the answer. We should be celebrating people because of the grace of God, because we understand the grace of God, that He bought us back. He loves us so deeply. He has paid the greatest price with His own Son so that we could have life. And not just life. What kind of life? Abundant life. My friends, here in Ephesians chapter 2, but God being rich in mercy. How kind, what kind of mercy? Rich. Rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which He has loved us. Not just cheap love. But the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together in Christ. By grace, my friends, by grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His, kind, of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. And not a result of works, So that no one may boast. Consider, contemplate, confess, and my friends, celebrate. And we are going to find ourselves coming to the Lord's Supper where we recognize the Gospel. And as we recognize the Gospel and it swells in our heart, we desire to come and be fed in faith. As we believe in Christ, we recognize, we contemplate, we consider, and we confess our idolatry. We come to this table and we celebrate the God-centeredness of our redemption and we eat and drink in faith. My friends, that's why we come to this meal. This meal is for those who are in Christ Jesus, who are members in good standing at a local evangelical church, for those who are not under God's discipline for being wayward, but desire to be a part of His community of faith designed to even discipline and call us into greater holiness. So as we close this sermon, my friends, we are going to take a moment and pray. Lord, open the eyes of my heart. Is there any idolatry within me? Then we will confess it privately before our God. 